We're going to continue thinking about what church is. And this morning we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reading from verse 11 down to verse 21. Some really well-known verses from 2 Corinthians. And we're thinking about how we are called to be ambassadors of Christ and what that means and how we get to be that and what it looks like in our day-to-day living. So let's read from God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reading from verse 11 down to verse 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and do not know about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we ask that as we come to sit under your word now, that, Father, we would have ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive, eyes to see what you are doing. We thank you that your word never returns to you void. Thank you that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to us for your servants are listening. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just so you know, when Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, there's been a wee bit of, uh, a wee bit of fallout had taken place between um, some of the church in Corinth towards Paul the Apostle. He had planted the church in Corinth, but then some of them in Corinth uh, rejected his teaching. They um, kind of tried to deny who he was. And there's multiple reasons for why this was the case. And we see that in 2 Corinthians that actually this is Paul writing a letter here because some of them have accepted the wrong that they had done. That actually they they had rejected him. They had rejected his teaching. They hadn't kind of held him as an apostle. And, and, and this is really, that's where we see reconciliation here. This is part of the central part of these, these verses um, that, that, that Paul is trying to pull back together with the church in Corinth. They had kind of um, disregarded him in, in, in some sense. 
And that's really important that we remember this. And there was reasons for that. One being his style. They didn't like his style. They didn't like his status. They didn't think he was eloquent enough. And, and they didn't like that he kept getting persecuted either. So there was multiple reasons for why this was the case. But they had rejected his teaching. And they had kind of tried to distance themselves from him. But in, in, in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we see that there was another, we, we read that there was another letter written that we don't have, um, that, 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 that Paul addresses the church in Corinth. And he says that he addressed them with tears and with anguish. And actually we now see though that they have, they have understood that they were in the wrong and they uh, accept that. Some of them do anyway. And Paul begins here in verse 11 by saying, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul has just been saying to them that one day, everyone, every one of us will stand before the Lord. Stand before Christ's judgment seat. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for everything that we have done in this life. Or everything maybe we haven't done in this life. And now he says that knowing the fear of the Lord. And one of the things that Paul is doing here is he's talking about his motives in ministry. And there's two that he highlights, but the first is the fear of the Lord. When we hear fear, I don't know what comes to your head. You probably, you might think about, uh, you know, the, the fears that you have, a fear of spiders or uh, a fear of heights or a fear of flying or, or something that you are afraid of. But that, that isn't what fear is here. Fear in scripture is, is like having a reverent awe towards the Lord. Understanding whose presence it is that we are standing in. Coming before him with reverence. Bowing our knees because he is so holy. He is so worthy. And he is not like us. But what we do in this life matters. How we act is important. We don't just adopt a set of beliefs and then sleepwalk into eternity. That isn't the calling on the life of the believer. I've been thinking this week about, about John the Baptist. And in John the Baptist, when, when we're introduced to him in Matthew's gospel, he says two interesting things very close to each other. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then a few verses later, he goes on and he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes on and he says, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the gospel calls us to repentance in Jesus Christ, to repent from our sins, to say sorry for the wrong things that we have done, but then to live out our repentance. Another way the scriptures put it is to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. We are to bear the fruit of our repentance. It doesn't earn us salvation, but it flows from salvation. Our fruit. And this fear of the Lord that Paul is speaking about in verse 11 comes from knowing that one day he's going to stand before the Lord. Just like each one of us here, one day we will stand before the Lord and have to give an account for all that we have said and all that we have done. 
Not just that we've said sorry for our sins and said the sinner's prayer. But for the fruit that we bore and did not bear post-repentance. We don't just adopt a set of beliefs and sleepwalk to eternity. There is a calling that God places upon his people and upon his church. And that's kind of what Paul begins to unpack in these verses. That we see the climax of it is about being entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. And being ambassadors for Christ here in this life. But here lies a really important point. Paul is not living afraid of God's judgment because he knows that Christ died in his place he knows that Jesus bore the wrath of God for him he knows that all that has been dealt with and now nothing can separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus but as repentant sinners friends we live in the shadow of the cross but also in the hope of the empty tomb looking and longing to live a life that bears the fruit of our repentance through the power of the Holy Spirit remember many had rejected Paul and they'd rejected his teaching that's why in verse 12 he says this, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Here we have Paul beginning to unpack some of the, the difficulty that was still present within the church in Corinth. That there were still those that, that they were concerned with how Paul looked and how his style was and what he was doing and how it appeared. But they weren't taking note about what was in his heart. And that's why Paul is unpacking these two motives. The first being the fear of the Lord. That is one of the motives and the driving forces in his ministry was the fear of the Lord. They'd rejected him. Because of his style. They were critical of his ministry. And what Paul really is saying here. This word boast. It might sound weird for us. You know who live in the west of Scotland. Where anybody looks to put their head above the parapet. You know we like to bring them back down a wee, a wee level. I don't know if you've ever, ever experienced that. But I know that takes place in the Isle of Lewis. We don't want people getting too big for their boots. Do you know. And here Paul is speaking about as an apostle. About people being able to boast about him. And you know. Maybe a Scottish man thinks, ah, come on, Paul, calm down a wee bit. You know, you might, you might be getting a bit ahead of yourself here. But really what he's unpacking is that there was those that were critical of how he appeared and how he kind of uh, looked in the style of his ministry. And what he's saying is, look, I, I want you as the church in Corinth to be able to be proud of me and, and who I am in your ministry and in your church. I don't want you to be bickering about how I look and, and how I appear to you. I want you, church in Corinth, to, to know what's in my heart. And for you to then to be able to say, well, do you know what? Yes, Paul the Apostle, he might not be everyone's cup of tea, but the Lord knows his heart and he has a fear of the Lord. His motives for ministry are good and godly. He wanted the readers to be able to respond to any criticism that they heard within their church or their surrounding areas. For them to be able to re re come back at that and go, do you know what? His heart is good though. He loves Jesus. 
And it's funny how often criticism that comes against leadership is surface level. It's about things that they they do, things how they present themselves. And there's nothing new under the sun. That's what we see with Paul the Apostle as well. But what he's saying is, be concerned with the posture of my heart. And hopefully any leader, any godly leader, their heart is positioned in a place towards the fear of the Lord. Paul is saying, don't be concerned about my style, know my heart, because the Lord does. The Lord knows my heart. This is Paul's continued thought in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we are in our right minds, it is for you. This word beside ourselves is a bit of an interesting word. It it kind of gives this image of um, like ecstasy. That kind of um, being, uh, you know, just so ecstatic, so joyful, kind of, um, that's why they say, you know, out of, uh, um, beside ourselves, and then the, the opposite they use is in our right mind. It might, it might seem that actually this person isn't, isn't fully with it. And, and really what the, this word and what this phrase is pointing towards is some of the spiritual experiences that we can uh, enjoy and know through the power of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle speaks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, whether it's about tongues or, or things like that. And that's kind of what he's unfolding here. He, he's saying, do you know what? These things are good. The, the gifts of the Spirit are great. And we see Paul unpack that in 1 Corinthians. But he also talks about how the church should be a place of order. It's not a place of chaos. It's a place of order. And he says, that's why we are in our right mind. It's for you. It's for your benefit. And he goes on to say, so that we're able to persuade people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says these remarkable words in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. I mentioned that Paul the Apostle had two motives that he unpacks in these verses about the style and the heart of his ministry. The first being the fear of the Lord and here we have the second The love of Christ. The love of Christ controls us. Verse 14. It is so important to note that the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ are not in opposition of each other. The two go hand in hand. When we let the love of Christ transform us, It leads us to a place where our heart is postured towards the Lord in godly and biblical fear. Because we begin to see just a bit better whose presence it is we stand in. Not that we're afraid of him, but that man, our God is so mighty. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. Yes, he is loving. God is love. But that doesn't mean that we can just, you know, lose that respect that we have for him. The love of Christ controls us, but also we know the fear of the Lord. The two go hand 
in hand. And he begins to unpack what this love of Christ looks like. And this is the reason, this is why he conducts himself in his ministry the way that he does. It's because he has a godly fear and the love of Jesus has transformed him and guides his steps and his words. And when it says control, again, this is might be a bit of a countercultural word. We we kind of think anything that's controlling it sounds a little bit negative, but control here, uh, another could be constrained. Uh, what what it's pointing to, it's not like a a directional force that you're you're forced into being something, but it speaks about this um, motivational. It's more like a, it's more of an encouraging word. It's not like your arms twisted behind your back by the, by the love of Christ. But actually the love of Christ takes hold of your heart and it encourages you. It pushes you on. It spurs you on. It transforms you to be who God has made you to be in his image. And this should be the same for all of us. Why should we tell people about Jesus? First and foremost, because we love him, because we love Jesus, because we've been transformed by his love, it has touched our hearts, it's made us who we are, it's taken us from that pit and it's set us upon that rock, it's taken us from death and guided us into life, it's taken us from the darkness and it's placed us into light. Let the love of Jesus control your heart. Let it motivate you to be who God wants you to be through the power of his Holy Spirit. All that we say and do should flow from a relationship with Jesus. It is the most important thing. It is why you will hear me beating that drum every single Sunday that Jesus loves you and he wants you to know and experience his love because it is the most important thing. And Paul shows us why that is the case. What does this love look like? He doesn't leave it to our imagination. It is the most important and crucial part of our life is our relationship with Jesus. Before you look to serve him, look to love him. Before you look to tell people about him, know him. And we're left no doubt what God's love looks like. He tells us very clearly that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He leaves us in no doubt what the love of Jesus or the love of God looks like. He points straight to the cross. That's where we see God's love. That's where we see the depths of his love, the extent of his love, the price and the cost of his love is seen at the cross of Calvary. This is how you know that Jesus loves you. Because he went to the cross for you. Now don't misunderstand verse 14. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And then going into verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't misunderstand this verse and don't take it out of context. This verse is often taken out of context to promote some teaching 
um, that I would call false teaching that, that, that looks to tell people about universalism, that, that everyone goes to heaven regardless of, of what they've done, where they are, what the, you know, it doesn't matter about anything. You know, Jesus has died for everyone, so everyone's going to go to heaven. That isn't what this verse is saying. That is not what this verse is saying. So please do not misunderstand what this verse is teaching us. Universalism is, is not biblical. It's bad theology and it's bad exegesis. It's taking verses out of context. Because we see just straight after where, where he talks about, you know, one dying for all, therefore all have died. It goes on to talk about those who live might no longer live for themselves. There, there's, there's a constraint upon this. It's the same with that really well-known Bible verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The verse doesn't stop there. It continues that whosoever believeth in him. That whosoever believeth. There is something that we have to do to benefit and, and to enjoy the cross of Calvary. We have to come to it in faith and in repentance. Whosoever believeth, that, that whoever lives might no longer live for themselves. We began this morning by speaking about repentance. There is a massive condition placed upon the gift of salvation. It is a free gift that is offered to all that will cost any who accept it everything. The requisite of repentance from our sins and receiving the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ's once for all sacrifice. That whosoever believeth, if you don't believe in him this morning, if you've not come to him in faith, if you've not asked him for the forgiveness of your sins, there is a lost eternity waiting for you. And that is what scripture tells us. And that might be hard to hear, but that is what the scriptures teach. But the gift of God is everlasting life that is ours through faith in Christ's atoning work when we repent of our sins and believeth in him. It is as simple as that. Being a Christian is not just adding an activity to, into our week, but Paul describes it very clearly what this then looks like when we believeth in Jesus, when we repent, when we accept the free gift that God offers to all. That actually he describes it as we become new creations. We become new creations. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul shows that anyone who is in Christ, again, we see that it's such an important part in these verses to be in Christ. You know, that, 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 that hymn, that ch the children's chorus we used to sing that kind of comes from the Old Testament, you know, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and they are saved. Have you ran into the strong tower that is Jesus this morning? Because if you have, then you are in Christ. You are saved. You are safe. But you are also a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. 
And this is the impact and the effect of Christ's love at work in our lives. We are a new creation. The love of Christ that led Jesus to die at the cross of Calvary for my sins and for your sins. When we trust in that and when we receive that, we have to be able to say, the old is gone. I'm now in Jesus. The old has gone. The old me, the old way of life. The old habits, the requirements of the old covenant, they've gone. The new has come, the new me, the new Norman, the new creation, the new hungers, the new desires, the new way of life, the blessings of the new covenant that only flow from the blood of Jesus. And what's the point of all of this? What was the point of Jesus going to the cross of Calvary? Yes, it was to show his love for us. But why did, they want, why did he want to do that? Why did God the Father send his son to the cross of Calvary? So that you could be reconciled to God. That is what Paul the Apostle teaches us here. Verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is all from God. This is all of God. The heart of the gospel story is a crucified Jesus. And we must never forget it. God in the New Testament is always the subject of reconciliation. He is always the one who is doing the reconciling. It is always him. He is the one who is at work through Christ. It is God himself who initiates and effects a reconciliation through Christ. It is nothing to do with us and it is all to do with him. Salvation belongs unto the Lord. Thanks be to God for that. Because if it was down to me and if it belonged to me, I would have lost it a long time ago. But it is God the Father who works the reconciling through his son Jesus Christ. Reconciliation then is something, not something that we do, but is something that we benefit from. It is something that God has accomplished. That is why Jesus at the cross of Calvary could say, it is what? It is finished. It is done. It is completed. The price has been paid. And as we look to be ambassadors for Christ, as Paul says, we're not calling people to make their peace with God. Never hear me say that. I'm never saying that you need to make your peace with God. But that God in his sovereign mercy and his unfailing love has offered us peace. He has made the peace. It is him. He's done it. He's done it for you. He's done it for me. He's done it forever, any who would believe in him. And we receive that peace that God is offering through repentance and faith in Christ. We don't have to appease him. We don't have to convince him or please him. We just have to receive from him. And how is this possible? How is the peace achieved? How is it done? How can we be reconciled to God? Because as verse 21 says... And as we'll think about in a few weeks' time, the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why Paul says, be reconciled. He doesn't say reconcile yourself. 
receive what God is offering you this morning. God didn't turn a blind eye to our sin. He doesn't just forget the wrong things that we have done. He doesn't just sweep them under a carpet. But Jesus took God's wrath for us. So we could, we could have the gift of everlasting life. And he has paid the price. And this is the message of the gospel. You are loved. But sin stopped you enjoying what God wanted you to have. So because of God's love, he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to the cross so he could die for you. And now because of Christ, you can through repentance and faith be reconciled to God. It is so simple. It is so beautiful. And it is so powerful. And when we're reconciled to him, you know, this blows my mind. Verse 20. That he entrusts to us. He entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. He's redeemed us. He's delivered us. He's reconciled us. But he entrusts to us this ministry, this message of reconciliation. God has sent his messengers of his gospel into his world. The word ambassador, many of us would, would be able to kind of imagine what that looks like. Being in a, maybe a foreign country and, and representing your, your place where you come from. And it's fairly similar here in the original language. But what Paul is claiming here is that he is a spokesperson for Christ. He's there not in his authority, but by Jesus. It's not his messages, it's God's. Ambassadors make the case for the one who has sent them. Friends, that is what God is calling us to be. Ambassador, ambassadors, messengers, mouthpieces of reconciliation and the gospel in our community and to those around us. And just as we look to finish this morning... I know there's some of us here who are already writing ourselves off saying, do you know what? That's fine. Some people might be called to, you know, tell people about Jesus, but that's not me. That's not my gifting. I'm not good enough to do that. I, I can't do that. I don't have the words. I don't have the gifts. I love the Bible verse that says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God doesn't need us to do it. But he calls us to do it. Don't sit there and disqualify yourself and say, I can't. I can't be that ministry or message of reconciliation. You're right, you can't. But he can through you. Your past doesn't stop you. It doesn't disqualify you. Your limitations won't stop you because he is all-powerful. I read this online somewhere. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper who denied Jesus. David had an affair and then had the husband killed. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossiper. Martha was a warrior. Mary was young. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient and couldn't have children. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther was an orphan. Balaam's donkey was a donkey. Elijah was depressed. Joseph was a slave. Moses had a stutter. Zacchaeus was short. Naomi was a widow. The woman at the well was divorced multiple times. Abraham was old and Lazarus was dead. 
you know what every single person on that list has in common? They all had a weakness, but they all served and loved an all-powerful God. And that is what he calls us to be, his vessels in sandy hills. Let him work through you. Let him use you. Let, him see, let, let, let those around us hear the message of the gospel that God has made peace with any who come to him by faith and in repentance. Let us pray. <coughs> Gracious Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that despite our faults, our failings, our insecurities, our limitations, Lord, you know all those things. You know everything. You know our thoughts before we think them. We thank you, Lord, that you still look to use us, though. Just as we read that list of biblical characters and their, their things that they had wrong with them, Lord, I wonder what we would add to beside our name. Lord, thank you that your strength is made perfect in weakness. And Lord, we simply ask, would you use us, we pray. Would you use us to be that ministry of reconciliation? To be ambassadors for Jesus Christ? To promote the gospel wherever we go? To tell all that there is a hell to shun and a heaven to be gained? We don't have to do anything apart from repent and believe. Jesus, we thank you for the simple gospel. Forgive us when we overcomplicate it. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.